So now that it's just you and me talking here for a second, um, I do want to admit that I don't know the origins or the meaning or the sort of history of Labor Day. I'm sure it's interesting. Um, I don't know it. But what I do know is that we're not working right now. And for that reason, I hope you are doing the same. You're at home, hanging out, relaxing with your family, preparing for football season, the NFL to return, and also, you know, just chilling out. And to help you along that path, we have brought you an episode today that we love, an episode that is special from earlier this year. And it's about these themes, about certainly the biggest holiday in America at this point, and also football, and also about how sometimes something happens that's massively meaningful that you almost never got to enjoy, even if you didn't realize it until the end of this episode. So, Jeremy Schaff, what are you here to tell us about today? So, uh, recently, one of our E60 crews was out in Los Angeles at the home of a famous musical director, producer, uh, Ricky Minor. We bought the house and had no furniture. So the first thing we did was just put pictures up everywhere. He was showing the crew around the house, all these pictures of all the legends. He's worked with everybody the last 30, 40 years. He's worked with, with some of the biggest names in music. Tina Turner, I worked with her and Stevie Wonder, Frank Sinatra. Louis Armstrong. He comes to one, one photo in particular. This photo was Whitney in 1991, 31 years ago. It's a picture that represents, in many ways, the apex of his career, but it's also, in some ways, the apex of Whitney Houston's career as well. We just didn't know what was about to take place. She was shaking as she was going out. The whole country is watching, and the world is watching. Seeing her and hearing her sing like it was yesterday. So Friday, February 11th, is the 10th anniversary of the death of Whitney Houston. Mm. There were so many giant moments in her career, but that picture of her standing on the field that night at the Super Bowl in Tampa maybe is the most vivid of them all. And it's about her performance, of course, but it's about the context the backdrop, and what was happening at that moment half a world away. The hoopla that traditionally surrounds the Super Bowl has been dampened this year by the dramatic events unfolding in the Persian Gulf. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. The battle has apparently reached here. This looks like fireworks on the 4th of July multiplied by 100.
It's been a decade since we lost one of the greatest singers in the history of our planet. Someone who left a mark not just on popular culture broadly, but on sports in specific in 1991. And while Whitney Houston's national anthem at Super Bowl 25 was a musical performance unlike any other, a single that went platinum just on its own, so much of what truly made the event singular has been lost in the years since. So today, ahead of the new E60 special, Whitney's Anthem, Jeremy Schapp tells the story of why a voice still echoes so loudly decades later and how the whole thing almost didn't happen at all. Today is Monday, September 5th, and this is ESPN Daily. Jeremy, Super Bowl 25 took place 31 years ago now. January 27th, 1991 is what we're flashing back to. I was five years old, I believe. Mm. My memory is, Child. as a result, a little a little hazy. Where were you, though? <laughs> Where was I, Pablo? I was there. I was on the field uh, in Tampa that night as someone working for, which is a stretch, ABC News. So mm. my father... <laughs> As he did, he was covering the game for the ABC News division. The game was on ABC Sports. And uh, I was a senior in college. I was 21 years old. I was eager to be present at the game. And uh, you're pretending dressing up as a journalist. Yes. I mean, not very well dressed. I was a college student. But, you know, I was down there all week. My father was working all week. He certainly didn't want me, you know, clinging to him moment after moment. So he said, Hey, to the cameraman and the sound man he was working with, why don't you babysit Jeremy all week? That'll be great. <laughs> so so that's they they got stuck with the gaffer, the grip they didn't want or need all week. And in exchange, I, you know, was a pack mule. I carried the tripod and the batteries and all that stuff. But as the news is concerned at this mm -hmm. time, Jeremy, before we dive into like the actual events of the Super Bowl on that Sunday, it feels like we need to establish journalistically like just the bigger picture of what was happening yes. around that time. Because roughly six months earlier, this is August 1990, right before the start of that NFL season. What happened? On August 2nd, Saddam Hussein, the ruler of Iraq, invaded his neighbor Kuwait. Good evening. In the Middle East last night, when the Iraqi army swept virtually unchallenged into tiny Kuwait next door, war in the Persian Gulf once again became a matter of the highest priority for the United States. It was a brutal invasion. The country was taken over. It raises the urgent question of what the U.S. can do to defend its allies in the region and what the world can do, if anything, to restrain the Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. This was a naked act of aggression, as they say. And uh, the world responded. Within a few weeks, maybe it was less than that, the United States and several other United Nations countries sent troops to the region. And this was Operation Desert Shield. In my direction, elements of the 82nd Airborne Division, as well as key units of the United States Air Force, are arriving today to take up defensive positions in Saudi Arabia. So over the course of the late summer and the fall in 1990, coalition forces were building up in the Middle East. And, and the understanding was that if 
Iraq did not back down, if it did not restore Kuwaiti independence, there would be action from the coalition forces and they would move aggressively against Iraq. At the time, you know, Iraq had the world's fifth largest army. It had a large air force. Mm. It had just fought a decade long war with its neighbor, Iran. So these were, you know, people thought of them as battle hardened troops. This was no joke, Pablo, in any way, shape or form. And we as Americans were, I think, very cognizant of that. Yes. And so, Jeremy, as U.S. troops are deploying overseas, as America's putting boots on the ground, the NFL season, meanwhile, is kicking off back home. And the teams that would eventually meet in this Super Bowl, in Super Bowl 25, the New York Giants and the Buffalo Bills. What were those teams like back then? Well, it's kind of a, a tale of two teams uh, heading in opposite directions. You know, the Bills, this would ultimately this season end in their first of four consecutive Super Bowl appearances. The offense that year had four Hall of Famers. Okay, James Lofton, Andre Reid, Thurman Thomas, Jim Kelly. The defense was considered the strongest part of the team. You know, Bruce Smith, a Hall of Famer, guys like Shane Conlon, Cornelius Bennett, Daryl Talley. This was a formidable team. They were playing this exciting uh, no-huddle offense, which kept defenses on their heels. And then on the other side, we have the New York Giants, who four years earlier had won the Super Bowl. We have Lawrence Taylor, you know, maybe the greatest defensive player of all time. A little bit past his peak, but he's still Lawrence Taylor. They're a Bill Parcells, Bill Belichick grind it out on offense, devastate them on defense type of team. And and the Bills are like uh, a pinball machine, Mm. a well-oiled pinball machine, if I may belabor the metaphor. (laughs) So 31 years later now, Jeremy, you spoke with the principals here. You spoke with some of these players. What did they remember about everything leading up to the start of the Gulf War? How much did that weigh on them as they're, you know, living their lives as football people? Well, it was something that was on everyone's minds. You know, uh, Bruce Smith, who I guess you could make a case for is one of the two or three greatest defensive players of all time. Hall of Fame defensive end for the Bills. Yeah, he came from a military family. My father served in the military. My brother served in the military. Uh, you understood uh, what impact it was going to have on the military families. Even if you didn't have relatives or close friends in the military, you knew someone who did. And we talked about that with Carl Banks, the great Giants linebacker of that era. I know in particular in our locker room, we had a lot of guys that had friends or or family friends that were uh, part of the, the Gulf War. It was an odd summer because... You know, in my lifetime, I had never really known war. I grew up at the end of the Vietnam War and only knew stories of that. I don't think anybody of my generation knew what it felt like to be on war footing as a society. So at the end of November in 1990, Jeremy, this is just two months before the Super Bowl. Let's remember, Mm -hmm. the U.S.-led coalition issues Saddam Hussein, the leader, the dictator of Iraq, this ultimatum that Iraqi troops need to leave Kuwait by January 15th or face military conflict. If Iraq does not reverse its course peacefully, then other necessary measures 
including the use of force, should be authorized. For the next 45 days, until the January 15th deadline, officials expect that a game of diplomatic chicken will be played, and all the world hoping that Saddam Hussein will withdraw his troops rather than fight. So a January 15th deadline, Jeremy, with the Super Bowl, meanwhile, scheduled for January 27th. This all means that the biggest sporting event, the biggest cultural event, period, in America is going to be played seemingly right as America is going to war for the first time, as you said, in decades. How did the NFL handle all of that? Well, um, you know, it was clear to the NFL that this was an unprecedented security challenge. Uh, There had been a bunch of movies in the 1970s what ifs about you know terrorist plots at the Super Bowl, so forth. But this was the first time where those kinds of security concerns were very real. The game suddenly loomed as both a potential moment for kind of national communion in this crisis. And at the same time, it was clear to everyone that it could be a target. Mm. So... Commissioner Paul Tagliabue, uh, he had to go to the highest authorities in the land to see if it was the right thing to do to play at all. Well, I spoke to various federal agencies in Washington, including the White House and the Defense Department, and the message from all of them is to play the game, subject to a monitoring of events as they evolve over the weekend. At the same time, Pablo, as you know, uh, the Super Bowl is not just a game, it is a spectacle. And it is, even 31 years ago, you can make the case that it was one of the last big tentpole events, if that's the right term, in American life. These monocultural moments where everybody pays attention to one thing. Right. And over the course of the preceding decade, the NFL had raised the stakes in terms of the halftime performance, the national anthem performance, all of the things that come to mind around the Super Bowl. And they had tried to get... A few years earlier, one of the biggest up-and-coming stars in the world, Whitney Houston. And for a few different reasons, it didn't work out. But they knew they wanted Whitney Houston to sing the anthem at some future Super Bowl. The planning for these things takes place, obviously, months before. Now it's probably years before. But back then, I think it was around September. So just as the troop buildup is is starting to take place uh, in the Middle East. They're deciding, who do we want this year? This could be a different kind of Super Bowl. We want Whitney Houston. After the break, Whitney Houston, in the lead-up to the Super Bowl, gives the NFL a lot more than they bargained for. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist 
who loves cracking open every nut, or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. So, Jeremy, remind us here. Remind people who were maybe in kindergarten or first grade, as I was here, (laughs) how big a star Whitney was at the moment. So, Whitney Houston was a huge star. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly, uh, how to quantify it. I mean, she was somebody with platinum records and number one singles. I think it was Chris Connolly, our colleague, um, Mm. who said, you know, she was one of these one name stars of that era. She, and, and she wasn't just big Whitney Houston. She was getting bigger. Her stardom was still growing. Um, everything that we have done has worked. I didn't plan to have things, you know, me sell six million copies the first time, and then the second time, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, it's going to happen. And if success is orchestrated, then I want to orchestrate it for the rest of my life. This is a year or two before The Bodyguard, you know, and mm. that huge Hollywood uh, hit with Kevin Costner. She's only 27 years old when this Super Bowl takes place. Wow. She's still very young, but um, she's huge and only getting bigger. So if she is this, to borrow sports cliche, if she's on the Mount Rushmore, Jeremy, of Mm. American musicians right now, alongside Michael Jackson and Springsteen and Madonna, the one-namers, right? How does she go about preparing for this kind of an opportunity? You know, the process is different than perhaps most people understand it. There's too much stuff going on to perform the anthem live. The NFL doesn't want that. Uh, Beyond that, the NFL wants to know what the recording sounds like, what Mm. it's going to sound like. So this is a taped performance and also a performance that will be vetted. Exactly. It's a taped performance. And then, you know, it's not that she's lip syncing. She's singing, you know, using her voice. It's not as if there's no sound coming out. But what people are hearing in the stadium and around the world is the recording. So they do the recording well in advance of the Super Bowl. Whitney, along with her team, including her musical director, Ricky Minor, they start thinking about, okay, this is a big shot. You know, 100 million people are watching. How are we going to own this moment? How is Whitney going to own this moment? She had ideas about how she wanted to do it. The first thing she mentioned was Marvin Gaye's version for the NBA All-Star Game. Yeah, 1983, Los Angeles. Unlike anything else that has ever been sung, anthem-wise. He took his time, and he did it, you know, really soulful. And that, you know, resonated for her. And they knew, you know, they didn't want to duplicate it, obviously, but they wanted to do something that was also unique. Something that she could own. Something... um, you know, that, that was beyond the conventional. And so they, they, they determined that what they have to do when they record it is to slow down the Star Spangled Banner. The standard version of the Star Spangled Banner is in three, a waltz, if you will. Oh, say, can you see, two, three, one, two, three. It continues all the way through in three. 
So what we decided to do is to add one beat so that it gives her a little more time. So now we have, oh, say two, can you see two, three, by the one, two, three, four. So it's four now. This gives you a little more time to breathe and hold the notes. I sent her the recording like a month before, after we recorded the orchestra in December. I'm waiting in the studio for Whitney to arrive in Hollywood. They tell me that her car just pulled up. I run out and I'm so excited. Whitney, did you listen to the tape? No, I've been busy doing a screen test for Kevin Costner, this movie, The Bodyguard. Just, you know, just play the tape. It'll be fine. You know, with very little discussion about it, barely warming up, right? We go in. I play it one time for her, and she listens. And she's, you know, her eyes closed. She's kind of feeling her way through it. Says, okay, I got it. No warm-up, no nothing. Just, I got it. Walks to the mic and nails it. And what was the NFL thinking, Jeremy, during this creative process that Whitney and Ricky are going through as they're coming up with this, like, unique time signature for this song? Like, did the NFL have input? Did they leave them alone to do their thing? So, you know, the, the NFL doesn't like to cede control in anything. That's why these things, part of the reason these things are recorded in the first place. And the game is getting closer. I believe, you know, we're down now to... The week before the Super Bowl, now the NFL wants to hear the recording. And uh, and when they do so, they are displeased. I got a phone call from Val Pinchbeck. He and the commissioner were up in Buffalo for the championship game you know, between the Raiders and the, and the Bills. And uh, they wanted to hear the anthem. That's Jim Steig, who ran all the entertainment at the Super Bowl for decades. We sent him the tape that we had of it. I got a call back the next day saying, we don't think it's appropriate. We need you to re-record it. No one wanted this version in that room. It was too different. We can't do it. Remember, it's not just the national anthem, and it's not just the Super Bowl. It's the national anthem being performed during a Super Bowl while the nation is at war. What are they doing to the Star-Spangled Banner? That doesn't sound like a Star-Spangled Banner. It sounds slower and more maybe melancholic. You know, what's going on here? You know, we've got this huge star... And she's got all this creative control, and we like having control, and this isn't the national anthem we're accustomed to, so <laughs> why don't you know why don't you just do it our way? What happens is poor Jim Steig is deputized to communicate uh, the NFL's <laughs> displeasure back to Whitney's team. And there was immediate phone call to John Houston, who was Whitney's dad and manager. He says, 
hey, son, uh, they, they tell me, you know, you got to cooperate with these people here now. And, you know, we worked hard to, to get her to do this. He says, yeah, well, they said there's some, some things wrong. You got to fix it, you know. I said, well, with all due respect, I work for Whitney, no one else but her. And this is what she and I have talked about. This is what she wants. So I need you to trust me. I remember walking down to Bob Best, who was our producer, and we called John Houston. And I just remember holding the phone out two feet from my ear as he said whatever he was going to say. But I'm sure there were a few expletives thrown in to, no, <laughs> we're not going to do it. So I'll see you guys in Tampa. We'll be doing the version that I sent to you originally. John Houston says mm. no. And I think there was so much else going on at this point. You know, it wasn't Jimi Hendrix, right, doing uh, his rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. They said, all right, whatever. Let's go with it. Okay, so Whitney has successfully executed this power play on the NFL. But coming up, we see how her performance reverberated throughout that stadium and also around the globe. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Shopping for Father's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Father's Day. Whether you're shopping for your brother's first Father's Day or your Renaissance man grandpa, whose interests, of course, are all over the map, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate them both. You can shop by price, anywhere from $25 and under to $100 and over. You can also sort by category, like cologne, watches, and more. Or gift lists for items like, I don't know, your grill master or golfer in your life. You can also get top tech, from Beats headphones to JBL portable speakers. Or if you're looking for top brands, you'll find gifts from Calvin Klein, Polo Ralph Lauren, and Columbia. So what are you waiting for? Father's Day is June 16th and we'll be here before you know it. Macy's offers the ultimate gift guide to making selecting something special for dad incredibly easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. All right, Jeremy. So on January 17th, 1991, the U.S. and its allies launch Operation Desert Storm and... There are airstrikes against Saddam Hussein and his forces in Kuwait and Iraq, and it becomes very clear now that the U.S. is at war. The liberation of Kuwait has begun. The United States has moved under the code name Operation Desert Storm, engaging targets in Kuwait and Iraq. The entire sky filled with tracers again, an incredible uh, display. I mean... This looks like fireworks on the 4th of July multiplied by 100. And then just 10 days after that, on January 27th, it is Super Bowl Sunday. So how did what we now know as the Gulf War, how did that affect preparations for this all-important game? 
Remember, Pablo, so January 17th, what we call the shooting war started. And they had what everybody considered a target in the Super Bowl, but no specific threats that anyone was aware of. But security was simply unlike anything that we'd ever seen before in an American sports event. The biggest news overall, obviously, uh, the continued war in the Middle East and its effects here. The game will be played as scheduled, but under very tight security. As of Wednesday, the game site was under 24-hour surveillance. All drivers and cars are checked entering the stadium. Extra concrete barriers and fencing is being installed to help maintain crowd control. And local authorities have begun random sweeps to detect explosive devices. What did the players you spoke to, what did they remember about the security atmosphere at this game? They remembered very clearly the players when we talked to them for this film. You know, I asked Bruce Smith about it, and I asked Carl Banks about it. It was nerve-wracking. On one hand, we're trying to prepare for, obviously, the the most important uh, game or games of our life. But on the other hand, there was a more dire situation uh, that was taking place and unfolding right before our very eyes. On game day, when you walked out on the field and saw the huge military presence, it was like, whoa. It was as intense as you can get. As an athlete, you walk out on the field and normally you get the acknowledgements, right? You see a law enforcement person, you say hello, they give you the nod. These guys were all business. At the time, it was something, you know, players were being asked about at media day. You have some other concerns on your mind at this moment besides the Super Bowl? Well, yes. uh, Of course, you know, everybody is thinking about the war and uh, that kind of takes a little away from the Super Bowl. But right now, it's really nothing we can do but prepare for the game. It was very much, as you would expect, a part of the storyline in the days leading up to the game. So... January 27th, 1991 finally arrives, Jeremy. It is Super Bowl 25. What was the mood in the stadium like, though, before kickoff? Because, like, what do you remember as Whitney is getting introduced for the national anthem? You know, on the field, in the moments, in the hours leading up to a game, it's a lot of nothing. And then suddenly the game's right on top of you and you're moments away. The crowd is down their way into Tampa Stadium, 74,000 plus as we approach the kickoff of Super Bowl 25. Unbelievable. The crowd on its feet. Tens of thousands of small American flags being raised. A sea of red, white, and blue with a full symphony orchestra. What I do remember is, and I've been to a lot of Super Bowls, that atmosphere, and it was charged. And it was charged with emotion and anxiety and excitement. And Whitney Houston stepped right into all of that. And now to honor America, especially the brave men and women serving our nation in the Persian Gulf and throughout the world, please join in the singing of our national anthem sung by Grammy Award winner Whitney Houston.
Jeremy, one thing you did in the E60 film is you showed that anthem to all of the people you interviewed. You brought an iPad, you pressed play. And so when you showed this to Bruce Smith and Jim Kelly and Carl Banks and Otis Anderson, the eventual MVP of that game, the Giants running back, and Al Michaels also, who called the game, what was their reaction? When they watch it, when they hear it, 30 years later, uh, you know, the emotions were still so raw and palpable. And it, you could see them transported back to the moment. Wow. I mean, how cool was that? That's one for the ages. Nobody did it better. Almost to a person, there were tears. And it's the power of the performance, and it's also the power of the performer. It's easy to dismiss these kinds of things and saying that through the, the fog of nostalgia and all that, we overstate the significance. You know, we're talking about U.S. troops in harm's way. What could a star singing the national anthem far from harm's way in Tampa that night, what could that possibly mean? We spoke to Lieutenant Don Collins, Air Force officer who was in Saudi Arabia that night, January 27th. I remember being a 21-year-old officer in the military uh, involved in the middle of a war and having her sing this song that represents the spirit of America and crushing it. So Jeremy, it is 2022. It's been 31 years since that moment. It's been 10 years this year since we lost Whitney Houston herself. Why do you think this song, her song, that moment, why does all of it still resonate so much? I think it's not only, Pablo, that it resonates so much. I think it resonates more now, maybe than it has earlier. I mean, when you think about our relationship as a nation with the national anthem, its performance at sports events over the last half decade, right? And what it signifies to different people in different ways now. In that moment, it still resonates for them. We didn't know, right? that the ground war would start on February 24th and 100 hours later it would be over. Hundreds of thousands of Americans were in harm's way and going up against what everyone considered to be a formidable enemy. And Whitney Houston seized the day. She delivered this soulful, unique, heartbreaking rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner. It remains unforgettable. And also because she is no longer with us. It brings to mind what was lost when Whitney died. And think about what happened in 2001, right after the 9-11 terror attacks. Her single was re-released, as it had been released two weeks after the Super Bowl. Mm. And it shot to the top of the charts, number one on the Billboard sales chart. In 2001, everything I'm saying 
Ricky Minor, her musical director, says it much better. Whitney's performance will be with us forever. So it's not far away where if we need that reinforcement, play that song, watch that video, and feel her passion for this country. Jeremy Shap, a journalist at the peak of his powers still. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Pablo. After Whitney Houston's performance, an actual football game was played, culminating in the closing seconds, of course, with kicker Scott Norwood narrowly missing a field goal that would have given the Bills their first Super Bowl title. The Giants hung on to win 20-19, claiming their second title in five years. And nine years later, Whitney Houston herself reflected on how it felt that night in Tampa Stadium. When I performed the Star Spangled Banner at Super Bowl XXV, you could feel the intensity. It was... um an intense time for our country. I could see the, in the stadium, I could see the, the, the fear, the hope, the intensity, the, the prayers. And I just felt like this is the moment. And it was hope, we just needed hope, you know, to bring our babies home. And the overwhelming love coming out of the stands was incredible. You can watch the E60 special Whitney's Anthem right now on ESPN+. Plus. I'm Pablo Torre, and this has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>